Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to season three, episode five of the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to cover the concept of maturity and specifically in the realm of communication. So as usual, I'm going to start this episode with a question. When you were a newborn, when you were a baby, Can you think back? You likely will not have memories of this, but just imagine that you could remember when you first started to cry and you were crying likely for one of your basic needs to be fed because you were wet or cold, something like that. Imagine that you're able to remember this. You will not be able to, but imagine that you're able to remember Did you take your caregiver's perspective into account when you were crying? Did you wonder if they were busy or not, if they had enough sleep or not, if they were able to meet your needs or not, or did you just cry? Chances are you just cried. And that is the the first emergence of communication when we are little. We are using communication as something called a behavioral transmitter. And what that means is that we use energy within our own system to create vibrations using mainly skeletal muscles against bone to then emit, transmit different frequencies out that in this context that I'm going to talk about are visible using our facial expressions or audible, auditory, using our vocalization, our voice frequencies, to travel across air that then gets sensed by another and creates an internal state change or behavior change in the other. So I use a certain amount of energy to create these frequencies and vibrations. They travel across and that induces another kind of energy change and energy shift in another person that actually is enough energy that it will create a behavior change that affects me somehow. So it's a behavioral transmitter. 
when we are little, we are extremely helpless, obviously, powerless. We don't have a lot of control over our body in order to master and manipulate and navigate our physical environment to extract resources to help us achieve homeostasis, for example, and project into the future. So we are extremely powerless, extremely helpless, extremely dependent on the people around us to help us survive to the next day. So we outsource a huge amount of what it takes for our survival to others. When we are communicating from that standpoint, communication for us, when I'm talking about this behavioral transmitter type of scenario, communication is a matter of life or death when we are little. How our signals are received and the behavior changes and internal state changes that happen from the people around us will affect our ability to survive and flourish. So these mechanisms that are happening, these serve and return types of frequency you know, transmissions, how they induce changes, and then the reception that comes back, how that affects our, our internal state and our ability to regulate. The, these create, in a sense, algorithms, cause-effect models, internal working models within us that then influence our future behaviors and our future communication patterns. So let's just come back first to the fact that our very first working model for communication is when we are helpless, when it has to do with life or death, really, and that we don't care at all what the other person is going through when we are first communicating, when we are first using this system. Their needs matter absolutely zero in those moments because it is critical for our survival, survival for them to understand what is going inside on inside of us, what our system needs in that moment. That is the only thing that matters because we have no capacity to do that for ourselves, to manipulate, navigate the environment, to do that for ourselves. So their needs, their mood, their stress levels, their abilities in that sense, in a way, are matter absolutely zero and ours 100%. So that's the first instance of how communication emerges for us. That's how we use our vocalization, our voice, and our facial expressions is only to get our needs met, regardless of what the other person's perspective is. And it has to be that way. So that's just the first layer that I'm going to talk about here for communication. It is a behavioral transmitter. It is something we use to affect the internal state and behaviors of another. And our first start up with that, our first scenarios of that come from when we are extremely immature. And by immature, I mean not complex, not able to do things for ourselves and not 
having enough data to work with to create other kinds of more complex problem-solving type of behaviors. So that is the immature start we have to communication. I think this is a really important topic for us to talk about because as we mature, I think many of us unconsciously start to use communication in other ways. We are using communication not only to get our needs met, but we use it to complexify and to share information to share, collect, like contribute to collective wisdom and things like that. But in many cases, and especially today, because we are so hyper-connected and we don't have a lot of instruction and training that is explicitly talking about how communication is used, why we use it, and how we get better at it and more effective at it, because we don't have that, I think it's important for us to talk about what, how we ourselves are using communication, how our patterns emerged over time, and what we can do to make communication more effective and a more efficient use of our energy. So to get into that, I want to talk about what maturity means. And so maturity from the framework that I'm using here has to do with complexity And it has to do with the ability to self-regulate. So maturity is the ability to manipulate and navigate the environment, to extract resources, and to use the mind-body system however we need to use it to our advantage, to benefit us in some way. And so one way that we can use this system to benefit us is to help us achieve an internal state that is beneficial or helpful for getting our needs met. And so one way that we do that is by, if we can regulate our nervous system enough so that we are in a state of adaptability for each situation, we're going to use energy efficiently. So for example... If we are in a state where there is actual danger to our life, then we are able to mobilize our system and either get help or fend off danger in order to survive that situation. So we may use communication, right, to yell or put up our boundaries. We may use communication to seek help uh, if we're injured, for example, or to organize ourselves against some sort of common threat. So those would be ways that we could use communication and this mastery of our mind, mind, brain, body system in a mature way to adapt to a situation. In another situation, we may actually need to restore and replenish our internal organs. And to do that, we can't be in a sympathetic nervous system activation. We actually need to go into more of a parasympathetic mode. 
And so in that kind of context, we actually need to use the mastery of this mind-brain-body system, which includes our mastery of communication, to create a sense of safety and security that can include being with other people, or it may not, it may be on our own, but in any case, a place where we don't have to be vigilant and protective, we can actually eat and digest and sleep and engage in play or other mechanisms we have for regulating and and down-regulating, in a sense, our nervous system so that we go into parasympathetic mode. Because that allows for blood flow to actually go to our internal organs and replenish and restore what's needed. And we must have that. We must have an interplay of that, of being able to restore and replenish. So maturity is our ability to use these systems to adapt to different situations. When we are immature, so when we're very, very young, for example, but also we can be older with more years behind us, but still immature. Immature is an inability to do those things. It's an inability to adapt to those kinds of situations. It's an inability for me as an individual to use my own internal resources to adapt. So immature would mean I have to have somebody else do things for me. I have to have somebody else regulate my internal state, somebody else to get resources for me, somebody else to protect me. And as you can see, this is not a judgment. When we are little, we need those things. But as we become more complex as organisms, as we have more mastery over our motor systems, over our communication systems, as we have more interactions with our environment, with others, we are gathering more data, which is making our problem-solving algorithms more complex. It's giving us a bigger repertoire of strategies of how to live life, survive life, navigate life. And therefore, it should be that we become more mature, that we need other people to do less and we can do more. That is the journey of maturity. It doesn't always happen, but that is how a system would complexify, which is what we are. We are complex adaptive systems and we are meant to complexify because um, maturing and complexifying, I'm doing this as a way, I'm using a, a motion in my hands right now that shows that we're that we are expanding. Maturing and complexifying means that as I become more capable of regulating myself, of mastering my own environment, of mastering my systems in order to get my own needs met, my own desires and my own needs met on my own, I have the ability to then use energy and communication in other ways that don't have to do with my basic needs anymore. So that means that I can use it for more of that cumulative kind of knowledge or complex kind of problem solving, projecting further and further into the future. And it means that I am, because I'm more self-regulating, I'm able now to contribute to other people's ability to regulate. If I have everything I need taken care of in my own internal system and my own mastery of my own ability to navigate and master this physical environment, my internal environment, 
I now am able to contribute to someone else doing that. They can now look to me, outsource some of what is needed in times of distress or danger or when they are young or whatever, to look to me to help them, which means that I now can become a member of the species, a cell of the system that can self-organize its own little subsystem. And this is how nature complexifies, complexifies how systems become better and better at being resilient and self-regulating. The more there are subsystems that can kind of group together and self-organize and self-regulate, this just keeps um, making more and more intelligence kind of happen because you're getting more combinations that are taking care of each other that can then specialize and cross-fertilize and contribute to collective intelligence instead of Let's say there's just one higher level of a hierarchy and all the cells of that system depend on that one higher level hierarchy. The old, Let's say there's only one cell that can self-regulate and all the other ones are immature and not able to do that. They will all try to siphon off of that one self-regulating cell, the one alpha or the one higher order kind of cell. That is very... Um, inefficient for the system and depleting and will have very little resilience because if that one self-regulating member, if anything happens to it, all the not self-regulating, and I'm going to say immature cells or members or organisms are done. That's it. That's it for the system. So the more self-regulating cells you have, and we're talking people, but I'm talking about any kind of system, but let's say the more self-regulating members you have of a species, the more resilient the species becomes because you have more members that can then help other members in times of need. And that includes the, the newborns and the immature and then people who also age and also become more fragile and frail and vulnerable. So it's always a good idea for more of us to become self-regulating. <laughs> and so we can use our behaviors and our communication to do this. The tricky thing is that many of us have not learned on that kind of explicit level how to become self-regulating and how to then adapt and adopt and modify our communication in mature ways. So what I see happening in a lot of scenarios is that people have not learned how to regulate themselves they haven't learned how to regulate their own nervous systems. And so they're always looking to another person to help them regulate. And it's, I'm not saying that that's wrong because we are mammals. We are co-regulating. We will always need others. Others are always, other conspecifics, members of the same species, are always going to be a part of our plasticity, of our collective intelligence, 
And we do absolutely need others for our ability to regulate and soothe our nervous systems. Um, it's part of the ox, oxy, oxytocin system. Um, so we do need that. What I would say, however, is that sometimes there is so much emphasis on other people's behaviors and moods and what's going on for them that if a person has not learned how to self-regulate and the other piece that I'm going to get to in this episode has not learned how to interpret and appraise the signals of others in ways that allow them to kind of keep their center despite what other people are doing, then it means that we have a lot of people that are at the whim of all other humans' behaviors and reactions. And humans are an incredibly volatile and collectively traumatized species that if we are looking too much to other people and their reactions and their behaviors and their signals to regulate our nervous system, we're going to have a lot of volatility. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs and a lot of stress and a lot of dysregulation. So I just want to reiterate, I'm not saying we don't need other people. We absolutely do. Bottom line, we're mammals. There's no getting around that. But we're also primates. And then we're this very special level above that, which is that we have this incredible prefrontal cortex that is this control tower for organizing all the other systems. And the other very special thing that we as humans have uniquely is the ability to make meaning of things. And so this is where we have the ability to do something really special with the signals we're getting from other people with our past experiences, even if they were traumatic or tragic. And this ability to make meaning of the signals that we get is also where we can get really tripped up too. And this is because what I was talking about at the very beginning of the episode, that our first experiences with communication were so urgent for our life that the sensations and the, you could call it procedural or implicit, memories that exist within our brain body system that are tied to the different signals we were getting from people in our environment, whether they were attuning to our needs, whether they were helping us regulate, whether they were shutting out, withdrawing, maybe they were extremely intrusive and they were trying to always get reactions from us to soothe them, or they were stonewalling and ignoring, whatever that is, all of those different patterns got stored within us when we were very little and had a lot of meaning. It meant life or death if a caregiver was responding to our needs or not, shutting out or not. So the meaning that we have for a lot of social signals in our life is sometimes more urgent feeling then they actually need to be because when we were little, they were that urgent and we haven't erased that memory. 
It's still stored within us. The only way we can upgrade that is we have to affiliate, we have to actually associate new meaning with those signals. And this is where the maturity and complexity of the human brain is so powerful and special. Because, for example, if when we were little, a caregiver got extremely angry at us crying or turned away and shut us out, ignored, neglected, when we were crying or when we were fussing or when we were very happy and we were actually trying to get them to amplify a joyful, excitatory state with us, which is something babies do. They, we actually make facial expressions of whatever will get a caregiver to amplify that mobilized, exploratory, excitatory state. And it, so we use them for that. And so if it doesn't get met with that, that can also um, feel like misattunement and can actually induce a feeling of what we would call shame. So in those first instances of our communication, of the emergence of our communication systems, we are getting certain signals from caregivers that can get stored as when someone turns away, when someone is not attuning to me, when someone is not responding to me, this could be death. Not on a conscious level, not on a verbal level, but to your little brain body algorithm level. It was very meaningful in a very serious, serious way, what they were doing, how they were responding. And so that's there, and that doesn't get deleted, that doesn't get upgraded unless we upgrade that. So now, what, what I know I hear when I do workshops with young adults, with kids too, but with teenagers and emerging adults, is that when someone is not responding to them, that is sometimes the scariest and most dysregulating place they will get to. Sometimes worse than the person responding in a harsh way is not getting anything back. And this is amplified even more when we think about social media as well, that when you put something up, you are replicating what you were doing when you were little, which is using a, a visible signal. So when you were little, it was just your facial expressions. Now it's a facial expression that gets stored with a digital device of somehow, you then project it out to the world. And then also auditory, if you're using voice, you're projecting it out to the world and you're waiting to see how that gets responded to. So if we don't have some acknowledgement of how deeply that system is stored within us and how much meaning we make about what, how that gets responded to, how our signals get responded to, we may we likely do because it's unconscious, go into a state of extreme stress and dysregulation when the signals are not met in the way that, that feels attuned to us, that feels like will regulate us. I'll also say on the flip side of that, we may put way too much positive meaning and almost giddiness to when people are responding. And that is that whole dopamine kind of circuitry, that uh, dopamine nation by Dr. Lamke. I think I just said her name wrong, but she talks about how when the pleasure is extremely high from something we get, such as social rewards, 
we have to understand that there's circuitry involved that will is very entangled with pain when we're not getting it. So that's a whole other topic. But where I'm getting at with this is that sometimes as well, because it was so about life or death, life enhancing or life depleting, life endangering when we were little, that these social signals we get now may also over excite us when they're positive, when we are getting attention. And we need to be careful with that uh, because of these pain pleasure circuits, but also simply because of how much meaning we are attributing to other people's social signals that may not be appropriate. And I would say are immature in the sense that how people respond to us now is not life threatening or life enhancing to the same degree. It simply is not because we are more mature, complex organisms and we have increased the amount of data we have for problem solving. We have increased our ability to master our motor systems or communication systems, our behavioral repertoires for being being able to self-regulate and achieve homeostasis and extract resources from our environment to help us project into the future and survive. Because of all that, social signals are not life-threatening or life-endangering to the same degree they were when, when we were little. And I'm not talking about a situation where something dangerous, physically dangerous could happen to us. That's a whole other topic. Um, I'm talking more about when you're actually, when you know somebody, it's not a physically threatening, it's not an actual endangering environment or situation. Talking about, for example, online communication, texting, or within family dynamics, relationship dynamics, where this is not about actual physical danger. That's a whole other topic. I'm talking about the, the rest of the time where we're, we're talking about rejection or someone not responding, not getting likes, not getting whatever it is. I think we are right now as a species in a phase of not acknowledging the importance of maturity in terms of our communication, both online and in person. We are not acknowledging, and by that I mean we are not acknowledging the importance of our ability to self-regulate and achieve the internal state we desire that's adaptive and regulating for us in each scenario that fluctuates throughout our days, moment by moment, we're not acknowledging the importance of self-regulation enough, which means that people are extremely sensitive to every signal that is happening around them. And so I think that to help us with this as a species, I think we need to increase our understanding of what it takes to become self-regulating and mature in that sense. Meaning we don't have to have another person all the time to achieve a certain state within us. How I want to get to that 
in this episode um, is two ways. So to help us self-regulate, we um, need to figure out how to have a better understanding of our own, the sensations that happen in our body and our own behaviors and routines and patterns. And so one way that we can do this, one way that we can increase our understanding of that is to pay more attention, is to notice the sensations inside our body and to notice, just to notice them all the times when we can so that we can get better at recognizing the patterns of when certain things feel very dysregulating and when they don't. The more we do this, the more we start to see that, for example, after being on social media for two hours, scrolling endlessly, if we were to really start to pay attention to what is happening inside our body during and before, during, and after, we might start to recognize a pattern that one, that spending that much time, for example, doing that has an effect on our internal environment. The problem is we're so enamored and so hypnotized by things, especially visual stimulus, by things in our external world, in our external environment, that we stop paying attention to our internal environment. And so one small adjustment we can make is to start to Notice when we are completely hypnotized and enamored by a visual stimulus and just come back into where, what do I feel inside my body? Even if we can only do it once in a while, if, we're, if we are able to start doing this, pulling our attention away from being kind of sucked into an object outside of us and pulling our attention back into our internal state, our internal environment, we're activating completely different circuits and we're actually activating more of our prefrontal cortex, which is our ability to witness ourselves, to monitor in a conscious way where we have conscious access to what's going on inside. As we do this, we strengthen the circuits in our prefrontal cortex. That alone starts to help us get better at self-regulating because our prefrontal cortex, those frontal regions are where we have our executive functioning, our ability to inhibit impulses, project into the future, weigh pros and cons, lots of other stuff. So simply, for example, as you are on a phone watching television on your computer, if you can alter how your attention, and it's, it's just an internal shift and it takes practice, but as soon as you're able to pull attention away from the external stimulus, the visual generally, or it's auditory, and go back inside your body, you can feel literally whatever you want, but as long as it's inside of you, feeling how your chest or belly is moving up and down, feeling your breath, you can feel your fingertips, anything you want. You can even feel what your facial muscles are doing, or is your, are your eyebrows scrunched in concentration? Is your jaw tense? As soon as you just do one little switch like that, a switch of attention, you're first of all, you're also exercising attentional control, which is another huge mechanism we have for self-regulating, probably the most important mechanism we have for self-regulating. So 
That is one small adjustment we can make each day is simply noticing when we can go back into our body, just feel something in our body, and then very likely we're going to get back, drawn back out again. But the more we can do that throughout our day as we're walking down the street, notice when we're looking at other things and then just come back into our body. Doing that is one mechanism for becoming better at self-regulating. The other mechanism for having more maturity, complexity, and self-regulation in terms of our behaviors and our communication is to increase our complexity of understanding. So what I mean by that is what many of us do is we take a signal from somebody else, a behavior, a reaction, what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're not saying, what they're not doing, if they pull away, if they withdraw, if they don't respond, if they, whatever it is. And we attribute a meaning to that, an explanation to that. Let's talk mainly about just people we know to start, and then that can expand to people we don't know, like online. But If we can increase the possibility of other possibilities behind their behavior, we have just complexified. We have just expanded the circuits that are going to associate social signals with different meaning. So let's say that they withdraw, they don't reply, they ignore, whatever whatever you want to call it. Remember that our most immature system is generally going to take over first. We're always going to, there's often going to be this hit of panic that comes from that because remember that those algorithms are deeply stored within us from our first communication um, interactions where it was life-threatening, life-endangering, life-enhancing. So we're often going to have that initial hit. But the beauty of what humans can do is we can start to attribute other meaning to what someone is doing. And that will allow for our brain-body system to start communicating in a way that might allow for other possibilities of how we feel about it and how we react, which then helps contribute to potentially a different way to respond to what they are doing. So, for example, if someone is not replying, not responding, whatever, if the common reaction you have is a sense of panic or hurt Um, anxiety, depression, nervousness, um, confusion, all of that. So these are all, I'm using adjectives from people. I've done a lot of workshops with young people on this and what they describe as the different states they go through when someone has not replied, which tends to be the most distressful of all the situations. If that's happening, just entertaining, so sorry, let me backtrack. The, the agitation, the distress that we are feeling from that behavior that we are noticing is generally correlated with the meaning we have made from that. And remember that that meaning 
doesn't seem to be very conscious or verbal, but it's often has this life-threatening kind of uh, flavor to it, which is that they are done with me. They are completely, utterly rejecting me. I am now alone, isolated, helpless, powerless. I have nobody to count on. It's, it's may not seem like that's what is happening, but generally speaking, because of how deeply this is stored and because of the meaning that that would have been for you from a long time ago, there is a chance that your nervous system is interpreting the physiological sensations from your body based on this perceived rejection as that threatening to you. So there, as those sensations come up, your brain will start to, in a sense, create a narrative or explanation or meaning about that. That this is really, really, really bad. That them not replying or whatever, whatever the situation is, it is really, 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 really bad for you. And that, that meaning that you've made, that is your chance to entertain another possibility that can create a new meaning. So instead of, so there's going to be kind of this unconscious thing that starts to happen. You can, as a human and a mature human, which I'm assuming you are because you are listening to this and understanding this. Otherwise, if you're a baby watching or listening to this, you won't understand my words anyway. So I wouldn't expect you to be able to do this. Um, So you can take whatever that is. You can even, you'll still feel the physiological sensations in your body of the distress, but you can entertain another possibility of, there's a lot of different ways you can go with this. One is, they might be busy, <laughs> which sounds um, obvious, but you would be surprised at how little our nervous system will entertain that possibility in those moments of distress, that they are honestly, truly busy, that they are going through something of their own and don't have energy right now to respond, um, that this won't last forever that communication can be restored at some point. Um, Even for you to make a new meaning of, oh, this is a chance for me to focus on myself. Instead of getting consumed by looking at the phone, looking at their reactions to me, I now don't have to continue the conversation because they haven't responded, which frees me up now to go do that other thing or go talk to that other person I haven't talked to in a while or whatever that is. So we have the ability to create these new meanings of an event that makes it less life-threatening. And I would say that's just the bottom line. If you can just get to a place where you acknowledge that you might be experiencing something that you're perceiving as rejection or some kind of social communication, maybe not just rejection, but a, a th- an aggressive kind of remark or mean or insult or whatever. If you can get to a place where that you were ma- making it mean less to be the, the end of your life, you're already a step above because it, that's already a step above in maturity, if that makes sense, from the very initial kind of meaning that our brain body system is making about communication. So that is the other aspect of what we can do. We can increase our understanding of the other person's behavior. 
I want to add one piece to this as well, a little more science to this. I'm not going to get too much into this. I think I'm going to do a workshop on this at some point. But just something to know, for example, that testosterone and oxytocin and cortisol, these are all hormones that have a really big effect on our behaviors and have an effect on, and I'm going to say, are entangled with our first attachment experience as well, where, um, for example, there is some evidence that people that, let's say, if you are a male with high testosterone um, or just a member of the species with higher testosterone levels, that oxytocin, so bonding, actually has an antagonistic effect on testosterone. So it actually can decrease testosterone. And depending on the person, so this does have to do with male-female hormone levels, but also just the the individual. We all have different uh, ratios in a sense of the testosterone and oxytocin and all that kind of stuff. So it is more of an individual thing, but there's averages across um, genders. So, for example, a lot of emotional bonding, emotional intimacy and connection can actually lower testosterone. And that can actually feel stressful for some people. What needs to happen in those moments is they actually need to withdraw and they need to so withdraw from the emotional intimacy, the emotional attachment and connection and focus on something else. So focus uh, potentially on themselves or and or some kind of mission or purpose, even the concept of hunting, which is going out and uh, becoming someone who can provide for others. Is, is So there's some studies on it actually being about actual hunting, but I think they haven't done enough studies on whether that is because of what the hunting brings afterwards, a reward for other people, et cetera, et cetera. But in any case, that for some people, a certain amount of too much attachment, too much emotional talking and bonding and all that actually can start to feel very stressful, suffocating for them. And they need to withdraw in order to recalibrate those hormone levels, in order to get back up to a level of testosterone that um, allows them to, in a sense, regulate and just be at their, the range that they need to be in for problem solving and things like that. So I'm just bringing this up because there are differences in the amount of closeness and intimacy that each of us may need from another person. And it actually affects our hormone levels. And so one person may not be as sensitive to the decrease in testosterone, for example. And one person may be very sensitive to that. And depending also on their own neurochemical makeup, 
they may need to withdraw. And this has nothing, this is not a personal thing. This has nothing to do with them not wanting to be in a relationship with somebody, but they may simply need to do that for that hormonal balance. If we can increase our ability to understand these kinds of perspectives, that everybody has different attachment needs, this can also allow us to make different meaning out of someone's behavior. So when they withdraw, rather than taking it extremely personally, and that this is the death of me, um, we can look at it as, oh, they might actually be regulating themselves. This might be their what they do to do that. So I'm somebody that does that. I withdraw sometimes. I pull away. And I'm thankful to have friends who understand that about me because <laughs> it's my way of regulating my nervous system. So if each of them made a lot of meaning about it that I didn't want to be friends with them anymore, for example, then it would be very difficult for me to be in a lot of friendships. Our ability to keep understanding this also helps us communicate it better. So I can actually communicate that verbally to people as well, which helps with all of the different you know, relationships and friendships. So, and then conversely too. So some people need a little bit more um, reassurance or whatever that is. And some people who have had different kinds of attachment experience, let's say very intrusive kind of caregiving, um, they may perceive someone's desire to be intimate and bond and attach as extremely intrusive. And so they may make meaning of the other person as well, that you are trying to entrap me. <laughs> um, and there is like a fear of enmeshment in terms of that. So th these are just things that the more that we understand that we all have different experiences like this, and we all have different ways of maneuvering and navigating um, intimacy and autonomy, that also helps us make meaning out of the different signals that we're receiving that are more curious and exploratory and trying to take the other person's perspective in mind as they send signals to us. So that brings us back to maturity, where when we are able to complexify our understanding, which means we're able to hold someone else's perspective while acknowledging our own, that is also what helps us, you could say, add value to our communication and our relationships in society. So what I mean by that is going back again to what I said in the very beginning of the episode, immature communication and immature complexity, immature systems take zero account of the other person <laughs> when they're communicating. A baby, actually, I'll just say that the frequencies of babies' cries are specifically designed to agitate the caregiver so much that they go into almost a state of distress so that they will do anything to make the baby not cry anymore. 
So what, whatever that, like feed them, take care of them. So the baby's cries are meant to actually really stress another person out. <coughs> so the immature, not complex, the immature system takes zero account of another person's perspective when they're communicating. It's only about give me what I need. I'm dysregulated, regulate me. I want this kind of neurochemical state, give it to me. Um, Basically, in a sense, manipulating, you can say, but it's a behavioral transmitter. So inducing an internal state and behavioral change in another to meet your needs exclusively. As we mature and we have more ability to master and navigate our systems and our environment, we also are gaining data that can help us, and our brains are actually expanding in this way to help us have what's called theory of mind, which is the ability to understand that someone else has another perspective, and then later more and more complex perspectives of this, that that person also has their own perspective, and that we can take that in mind as we communicate. So in attachment theory, when we talk about secure attachment, which I would consider mature attachment, is the ability to hold my perspective and another person's perspective at the same time and to truly try to embody and have empathy for the other person and what they're going through as we communicate. So that is the, in a sense, the, that road to maturity um, in terms of our communication patterns. And that ties in with what I was just saying about it allows us to actually add value now to a system When we become more self-regulating, which means able to take care of our own needs, able to achieve our desired internal state and adapt to situations using our own personal individual self-resources, and when we are able to mature our understanding and our communication patterns to include another person's perspective and truly understand what they might need or are going through, We now add value to a system. We now become one of those members, one of those cells that is able to attune to others and be able to respond to needs if needed, respond to distress and help if needed, as well as um, navigate or let's just use the word attune to enough of their communication that you can now enhance the entire system as a whole because you are understanding what they truly need and how how to achieve that collectively. So whether it's a team, a company, a family, a partnership, whatever, when you become self-regulating and more mature and complex in your ability to hold other people's perspectives, to truly tune in to what they may need, to regulate yourself so well that you don't need them to behave in a certain way, for you to have a certain state, you are able to achieve that state in a sense, regardless of what they're doing. When you're able to do that, you now are making it so that this system, because you can kind of understand what they may need, et cetera, et cetera, you can create behaviors that really make the system more efficient and powerful and effective as a whole. Because that means that person, the other members, the other cells of this system are 
getting what they need because you are helping with the collective intelligence of it and attuning to them, they are able now to kind of regulate a little bit better. That also helps them become more self-regulating. So it's a little counterintuitive, but the more attuned you get as a self-regulating, mature member of a system, you help the others become more self-regulating and mature as well. Because we are experience-dependent modeling organisms, right? So they can start to model themselves after you. So I I definitely have this concept in what I call the super regulators, which is my mini book and my website. But the more you become very self-managing, self-regulating, you are modeling exactly what that looks like in terms of your micro behaviors and your micro gestures in the midst of volatility. If you're able to do that, other people will be able to mirror and model those micro movements, those micro gestures that you are doing to become self-regulating. So it has this big ripple effect. And lastly, in terms of all this, in terms of this idea of maturity and communication and moving away from the model where we're using communication, we're using our voice, our face, facial gestures, whether this is coming in the form of what we're posting on social media or what we're communicating with others, facial gestures, voice, et cetera, typing, texting. When we move away from the immature model of just help me feel a certain way, behave a certain way so that I can feel a certain way. When we move away from that, we move into maturity, which is I will regulate my internal state. I will achieve the state that I need. And then I will cooperate and collaborate with people around me to help um, amplify that and complexify that. But I will achieve uh, internal states using my mind, brain, body system and my intentional control that I mentioned before. The more I do that, the more um, value I'm adding now. And the more that I add value, the more that I become a contributing member to a system, the safer I'm going to feel. So that is the maybe surprising side effect or byproduct of us becoming more mature and self-regulating and adding value to a system. The more we contribute to a system by by being that self-regulating, mature, holding other people's perspective, attuned model, by doing that, I add value. And this actually, because I'm contributing, I become my internal state and my status within the system becomes more secure. And because I'm contributing, and we can use our own very special, unique sensitivities to do that, because we're all going to have different ways of doing that. I covered that a little bit in the last episode. But we can use our own special sensitivities and talents and past experiences and all the perspectives we have to contribute to the system, to add understanding, to really seek to understand others using our different sensitivities, By doing that and attuning and understanding others well and having these complex perspectives, 
I am making myself, in a sense, irreplaceable and needed. And that, by doing that, I secure, in a sense, my, my status, my role within a system. And that allows me to feel a sense of safety. I actually will continue to regulate my system because I'm using my strengths, my specialties, my expertise to contribute to the system. So that is where I think I see a lot of stress right now, especially in the last clinic I worked in in Chicago with emerging adults, a really big piece that seemed to be missing for them. And I see this in a lot of others is a lack of a sense of purpose and what they're contributing. And they don't, this is not a conscious thing. They don't realize that this is happening, but they don't know what, what, what is it that they do that is, in a sense, valuable to others, needed by others. And I think that that is creating a sense of distress. When we have no idea what makes us special and why we're needed by anybody, we're replaceable, we're disposable. That may not be a conscious verbal thing, but it's there intuitively in terms of how systems work. We are all part of systems, and I think that that unconscious, implicit knowing is there, that we are either a needed, valuable, contributing member, or we're not. And so we may think we want others to always meet our needs and our desires, to always take care of us. We may think that that is what would make us feel safe, to just curl up in a ball and have someone spoon feed us or do our laundry forever and just live in their basement or whatever that image is for different people, having someone just constantly take care of us. That is that immature aspect of our nervous system that's emerging, that's coming out because we may not have had enough of that reassurance when we were little. And even if we did, it may never have been enough because that's kind of creatures we are. But that is a more, that's kind of that immature aspect of our nervous system that's emerging and dictating that. So we may think we want that, but when we actually become that dependent on someone to meet our needs, meet our desires, to try and have a, to trigger an internal state for us, we return back to that lack of power, that powerlessness, that helplessness lack of agency that we had when we were very little. And that is an extremely distressful place to be. When we're little, we had no choice. But if we were to go back into that more helpless, dependent kind of space, it would actually be extremely stressful for our system. And I think a lot of us are wanting that and almost creating situations like that without realizing that it actually is depleting us in some way. It's depleting, I would say, like a life force within us. When we are trying to get other people to constantly meet our needs and behave in specific ways that feel right to us, that fulfill what we want, that match what we want. So the more we get more in tune with what feels regulating to us, what actually regulates me without depending on anybody else, what regulates me whether it's exercise, meditation, listening to music, dancing, art, writing, creative writing, podcasting, singing, 
Um, anything we can do that is feels regulating to our nervous system, and a huge, huge, huge aspect of that, regardless of any of that, is our attentional control. If we're able to come back into our body, regulate our own breath, for example. If we are able to do that and get more in tune with that and not need other people to do it, that induces a sense of power within us, right? So that also, to go back in line with um, this idea of purpose and meaning and adding value, as we do that and we get better at regulating ourselves, it frees up energy for us to really even explore even more what interests us, what we're good at, what our skills are, how our past experiences create different expertise in us now. And that continues to allow us to explore how we add value. So that would be the perspective shift that I think is important for us to keep acknowledging as very important and for us to keep thinking about is how do we shift from the immature state of, I need everybody to react a certain way to me so that I feel better, which is value taking. It's like, I need you to behave that way. I need you to behave that way um, so that I feel okay. If we can shift that, shift the importance to be, how do I add value right now? How do I become a contributing member to this system? And a system is emergent and can be a conversation in that moment. It can be a group you're a part of. It can be a social media platform. It can be whatever it is, a family, a relationship, a classroom, work, workplace. How do I add value? How do I use my unique sensitivities, my unique gifts, my ability to understand multiple perspectives, my willingness to do that? How does my curiosity about other people's perspectives, how do I add value doing that? If we can shift our mindset to that perspective of how do we add value instead of take it, I think we become more mature, we become more complex, and I think that actually helps us regulate our systems and feel safer in the world because we are adding that kind of value. So that's um, that's it for the episode. Um, just a quick review. I went over the idea that communication is a behavioral transmitter, which means that we use it to induce a internal state change and behavior change in another, and that we we move from being immature systems where we use our voice, our face, for example to get our needs met because we are incapable of doing that when we were little. And so we use communication for that, which makes it very life, very urgent for our life when we're little. And that those algorithms may get stored if we don't consciously explicitly update them. They may unconsciously get updated, but we can amplify that by, by doing it more explicitly, by updating the fact that communication now, for the most part, and I'm separating this from actual life-threatening situations, but communication for the most part in most situations is not life-threatening. It will not enhance our life as much as we think. It will not deplete our life as much as we think. That is stored information from when we were little. So based on that, how do we use our more mature brains that we have now, as we get older and older, the more data we have and our mastery over our own environment and systems, how do we use that to hold other people's perspectives as well as our own 
so that we can attune to what's going on a little bit better? How do we use our own systems to regulate ourselves? And then how do we do all of that together as a, as a mechanism to add value with our communication? Instead of manipulating other people to constantly meet our needs, our unfulfilled child, childish needs, how do we use communication now, which is online typing, voice, facial gestures, whatever we're posting, whatever we're doing, how do we use that to add value now, to actually add curiosity, add complexity, to hold other people's perspectives in mind as we create things, as we communicate. These are things that actually help regulate our nervous system and help us feel a sense of safety and purpose and meaning in our life. So thank you very much for joining me for this episode. And as always, you can email me at hello at And you can also get my free mini book about self-regulation and co-regulation, as well as what I call super regulation, which is where we take our skills in self-regulating and our ability to regulate with others and then model it and extend it to larger communities and a sense of purpose for ourselves and for the collective. So that's the concept of super regulators. And that's in my little mini book, which you can get when you subscribe to stephaniefay.com. And a really great way to support my work, if you believe in what I'm doing, is to subscribe to the podcast as well as my website and to leave a five-star review and any kinds of comments that you have for me. So thank you very much for listening and I will catch you in the next episode.